Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the UW Film Club podcast, where each week we invite a member of the club onto the show to talk about a movie of their choice, whether that be good, bad, topically relevant, or anything in between. It's all up on the table. I'm your host, Cynthia Lee. And like last week, we do not have any special guests because, again, we decided that we like to do these things weekly, talk about movies. So instead, I'm just going to introduce all my co-hosts instead, Joel Garcia, Stephanie Tron, and Natalia Owen. Hello, hello. Welcome back. This was definitely voluntary. I was about to say forced for like a joke, but it's voluntary. (laughs) I'm not funny to say that it was forced. Three podcasts ago, we were like, we're not going to turn this into a Wes Anderson podcast. Three podcasts later, we've done And here we Wes are. We said oh. that we this is a trilogy now, right? So this yeah. is the end. Yeah. Oh, hopefully? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it did take. Yeah, I mean, it's there. <laughs> we'll, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. We'll but, see. Yes, I but mean, for also now... To- to our credit, you know, like most film podcasts would have covered Wes Anderson within the, like the first 10 episodes. And we're pretty deep into the existence of the you know, film club podcast. So I mean, Steve Zizzo was like episode, not episode 10, though. Exactly. I don't know what episode that you know, was. Maybe so. like 30. Yep. But now we hit the ground running with Wes Anderson. We're on our fourth Wes Anderson, but three with the four of us here. Would have been five, but Rohan is absent. He's in some... One of the Carolinas. Yeah, one of the Carolinas. Down south. (laughs) But yeah, if you don't already know from the title of the pod, we're talking about Royal Tenenbaums. We've talked about Rushmore on the first of this specific trilogy. And then second, we went all the way to 2014 to Grand Budapest Hotel. And now we're back in 2001. Is this one that this movie? Yep. 2001 with Royal Tenenbaums so like not right smack dab in the middle because is Royal Tenenbaums right after Rushmore yeah yeah I think so okay JK not in the middle then skewed to the early (laughs) of Rushmore (laughs) not right in the middle but I'd argue is in the middle of aesthetic and narrative function that Wes Anderson operates under so we'll just call it the middle (laughs) for our own sanity but yes, we're talking about Royal Tenenbaums, as we said, came out in 2001. Uh, who picked this one this week? I would say it was like a Natalia Joel recommendation of being the best film for me to try and understand Wes Anderson. <laughs> I don't know if that worked or not. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that later in the pod. I'm, I'm being a little teased, but if you saw <laughs> on my letterbox ranking, I think you know where it will go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's how I, was, I was like, huh. I'm, I'm... <laughs> but um, Natalia or Joel, since you guys chose, quote unquote, chose this week's film as kind of the quote unquote closer of our Wes Anderson trilogy, y'all want to give a brief plot synopsis of the film. You want to go, Natalia? You got it. You got it. No, you didn't do it. I did the much okay, more plot fine, synopsis. Fine. <laughs> Okay, this is just so, me, like, not wanting to say the plot synopsis because I know yeah. I'm going to shit the best <laughs> on it. So a lot sort of goes on, but, like, it's fairly simple, you know? There's a family, they're the Tenenbaums. Royal Tenenbaum is, like, should have been the patriarch, but it's just, like, 
not at all fulfilling his role as father or human, really. He's there. All the kids were prodigies at one point. Failed in that for the most part, but not really, but sort of kind of did, depending on the child. But then they're all in this sort of weird transitionary period of their lives where they're like, okay, I'm going to move back home. And then so basically the movie ends up with Gene Hackman of Royal Tenenbaum uh, manipulating his family into letting him come back and be a part of like the family dynamic by lying that he has cancer and he's going to die in six weeks. And then the rest of the family sort of come to terms with their relationship with him and each other. And yeah, that's it. Pretty solid synopsis. Yeah, Pretty solid synopsis. I think it is like out of the three we've seen, this one has the most narrative drive. Mm -hmm. I could, I think one could argue that Rushmore and Grand Budapest Hotel, you could say they're like different vignettes. I think Rushmore is like the loosest of the three. Grand Budapest does have that causal effect to it. But I think the different vignettes kind of are so out there that you almost feel like they're like randomly happening but there is a cause and effect thing happening and then here I feel like is the most cause and effect I've said cause and effect like five (laughs) different times but my brain is slowly losing power today I don't know if you guys would agree or not but I definitely thought that watching this film I think the intricacy of the characters is definitely a huge part of why this movie is this movie i think for me i think what i'm mainly focusing upon is like it has that focus or that will they find out or not kind of tension from the gene hackman cancer plot device i would say um i think it creates like an inherent tension of us and suspense for the audience in terms of like okay We've established kind of the relationship of this father with his children. With this cancer device, it kind of builds on like, okay, what happens to the children and how how's their relationship changed because of this device? And then also there's the suspense of will they ever find out about him faking? Because I think it's kind of obvious that he's faking in the beginning. I don't know if it is was to you guys or not but it was definitely like a very slippery well once you saw like dusty being the doctor it was like yeah. okay yeah i don't know what you guys think in terms of my claim that this one has kind of the most narrative drive oh well, yeah i mean like there's like a central thing that is like happening i guess and it's like less so that like you're just kind of like thrown in along for a, a ride and like you're not terribly sure what's going to happen I guess like say like Grand Budapest Pride I would say probably looser in that aspect and just like Zero and Monster Gustav are just it's sort of just like their adventures after having had like a death happen and then sort of following it along as there's a war happening in the background and stuff so like yeah I see what you're saying but yeah even with the like the even even though the his illness is fake that still inserts a sort of urgency mm-hmm. into the film where it's like okay well he's either they're go- they're gonna find out he's got this much time to like fake into a relationship with his children before they figure out his ruse or before mm-hmm. he has to like figure out his next step and like what is he gonna do with that amount of time like how does he react in terms of like okay, who do I prioritize? What relationship do I prioritize? What do I do to enhance my relationship with all my Tenenbaum children? (laughs) So yeah, definitely. I definitely think that that's what actually kept the film together is his 
having Royal as the central character and then basically having the plot driven by how his actions affect everybody in the family. Because Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but watch, and this is the third time I watched it, but it seemed like pretty choppy, especially compared to Rushmore and Grand Budapest. Just the scenes themselves, they kind of, while there was a cause and effect, Maybe it was just the aesthetics, but it felt a lot kind of like not clunky, but just choppier. Each scene was kind of separate and didn't flow as well into the next scenes um, Mm -hmm. as I thought did in the last two movies we watched. But you could disagree with me. (laughs) I think I might. And I think it's because of what you said about this film, like introduces immediately like royal royal as the main character and as kind of the instigator of all these different traumas like the beginning is so expository (laughs) Um, oh yeah yeah that's true but i think it benefits it in terms of okay now we can time jump and like split off to like different people's lives and kind of the different tones in which they live their life but because we had that kind of exposition it was just like okay we, we understand we kind of have like a grasp of like why they are the way they are in 22 years later that I think makes it feel coherent and not choppy in my opinion yeah yeah you also have those like intermittent narrations by Alec Baldwin which is so yeah. great it took but... me forever to figure out that was Alec Baldwin I have no oh, really? idea why he has such a distinctive voice but I was I think it's because of the language that was being used and like Alec Baldwin is like I don't know every time I see like an interview from him that is not the way he talks just I associate him with SNL Trump now and so it's so bad persona is like very different from a lot of stuff he's in but Yeah. yeah no go ahead Joel yeah, I think like, yeah, there definitely is like a pretty heavy plot dump in this movie. And just in terms of like introducing all these like super eccentric characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still feels very Wes Anderson, but I guess I can see what you're saying that like, it does sort of feel like it takes a second to get going, depending like, I don't know, like if you're not like buying in and like actually giving a fuck about the characters, then I could see this really being difficult. I was just like, all right, like how many of them are there? I get it. He played tennis. She was a prodigy, <laughs> but like, when is this going to start happening? But yeah, I think Royal does like serve plenty to being that. But I think, yeah, his presence like def- like definitely like serves that narrative in that way and bringing it more centrally. But I also think like, I think the characters like also, I mean, just for me personally, I think they would function well enough on their own. But I mean, that would just be creating a whole different movie. So yeah, whatever. I mean, I wonder what would happen if Royal wasn't like, Royal's relationship with the three children wasn't introduced immediately in that exposition and kind of how in the beginning they immediately establish Royal as he favors Luke Wilson's oh my god here we go Richie. again character Richie Richie, Richie yeah. more than Chaz and Margo who I want to talk about the Gwyneth Paltrow later because I was I was kind of amazed but um <laughs> but, but like kind of establishing a royal favoring Richie more than Margot and Chaz introducing that royal constantly calls Margot the adopted daughter or whenever mm-hmm. he introduces her the adopted daughter the kind of tension between Chaz and Royal through finance which super random but Wes, that seems like Wes Anderson's thick um I think just that I think it really depends on if you are okay with an expositor 
exposition dump in the beginning mm-hmm. because that beginning I think serves so much purpose in terms of establishing oh, yeah. you into the world that if you don't buy into it quickly I think you could definitely lose your lose yourself in a bad way in terms of the film. Yeah, I, I would almost wonder if we didn't have Royal as the main instigator, what would happen? Because in the 22 year jump, it's just like, here's this person's life, here's this person's life, and here's this person's life. And I wonder if that would work if there wasn't something keeping them together that is Royal. So I think that, I mean, without him, this central piece, I mean, then it is a completely whole different movie. Because I mean, it is like, about like family that reconnecting how things become detached and whatnot so without having that central piece then it's a whole different film so mm-hmm. hard to say but i it definitely makes it work for me so because yeah otherwise it's just like a ragtag group of like weird esoteric people it's just like why do they it's exist famous but people. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah there wouldn't be a lot of conflict with that royal yeah mm-hmm. definitely which i guess makes sense because he's the main character and it's called the Royal Tenenbaum. But yes, again, with the Wes Anderson, who's who, guess who, um, celebrity people, I think they all were kind of famous, like, already. Mm-hmm. And, like, almost every Tenenbaum was kind of famous in their own right when this was released. In the previous pod, we talked about being impressed by Luke Wilson. So mm-hmm. let's start there I suppose Luke Wilson thoughts I guess were you not impressed (laughs) I was impressed just because well I don't know much of Luke Wilson's filmography now that being said his physical appearance does not suggest the performance he gives in this film which (laughs) I think is good I think that's great (laughs) he surprised you yes he did surprise me just because of like his overall structure and the way he's physically built. You he don't looks like expect- a, a man's man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> his face is like oddly st- sculpted. Yeah. It's, it's, long. It's, it's quite stern as well. When he's you know, shaved, eyes, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, like, that scene. Is- I mean, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah at first if you're like what's going the, on here yeah, 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 yeah. But, oh some nice Elliot Smith going on He's shady. oh my god I was like <laughs> wow that was really I mean like yeah that definitely Elliot Smith music that that fits <laughs> yeah yeah so while we're on that scene I just liked how it immediately after you have Dudley saying like Gwyneth Paltrow running to the hospital and saying Dudley where is he and then Dudley goes who so it's immediately like <laughs> tragedy and then comedy and then tragedy again mm-hmm. and it like fits perfectly like for me it just it made sense the whole way through which just yeah it just makes it my like one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie i think luke wilson's character oh my god here we go again richie, richie. <laughs> um richie kind of he's like the main i think emotional not gut punch but there's like this emotional dread that kind of drapes the whole film where I think it's more the most explicit in him in terms of someone who is just so not neglected not neglected but like traumatized in terms I think Luke Wilson's performance is like someone who is wearing their emotions on their sleeve very Mm. visibly yeah Um, I mean his last tennis match oh yeah indicator of that (laughs) for those who haven't seen the film last tennis match where 
he discovers that Margot has now married Raleigh Sinclair. Raleigh, yeah, Raleigh. Finds <laughs> out that Margot is not interested in incest. Yeah. <laughs> it's not okay. legal incest. Legal incest. Do we get yeah. this conversation out of like? Because Jeff, I, I think I'm closer to like Eli Cash, Owen Wilson's character's perception of it. Of like, that's your sister. That is yeah, weird. no, I definitely do think it's weird, yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but she was very detached and it was made clear that she's not family from, like, that very young age, which was, like, Luke Wilson's character, or Richie's character's whole thing. Not actually related, though. So, definitely strange. Definitely yeah. strange. Yeah, but I think <laughs> what makes his character work, and I think what makes this film work for me, um is kind of just like the visibility of emotional strain that is his character that is also just inherent in every other character, but it's not like visible the way Richie's is like consistently throughout the film. I think you get kind of that strain, emotional strain by every other character as the film develops, but I think immediately they kind of set up Richie as the more visible physical appearance of emotional strain and devastation that I think it's always in our mind that all these people are kind of fucked up and messed up um, in a certain way. And I think that works for me personally, because I do like films about people who are just trying to exist in the best way possible. And I think this film kind of is the epitome of that in a very abstract way. Yeah, I think a lot of what like makes this movie stand out for me in Wes Anderson's filmography is that like the characters are a lot more dynamic in their emotions than in mm-hmm. some of his other films, I would argue. And then I think that makes like the interplay between characters feel like it has like a lot more like substance and value as opposed to other films that people might consider to be more like aesthetically based or whatever to, mm-hmm. not to veer into that conversation but yeah <laughs> yeah like i mean so that's why i think like a lot of that exposition exposition the worst for me is that like you are introduced to the fact that these people are just like strange for no reason like they're actually like fucked up and like have traumas and now you get to see them reckon with it and i think it does a really good job doing that so yeah Yeah, I think we kind of talked about it in Grand Budapest about how the story within the story kind of helps you not feel too of a much of a jarring stylistic blast in front of your face in the beginning and I think the exposition dump in the beginning kind of does that for this film for Royal Tenenbaums I think it kind of explains everything explains why everything is so abstract I mean I guess that's why exposition dumps exist but yeah I mean he just sets it up that way and it's like it's hard to describe but I'm just I'm more open to everything he's suggesting if he suggests if he puts it in that format, like, oh, your three, ch- you, your three children were all prodigies, and one of them started smoking when they were twelve, and the other one was breeding mice. Yeah, sounds right. Sounds cool. Um, and also aesthetically, I think the storybook stuff is just very pleasing. Like in this film and in Grand Budapest, like whenever the the typeface appears on the screen, I'm like, ah, yes, passage of time. Explain to me. Yeah. Structure. <laughs> Okay, was I the only one who was like reading the chapters and then like imagining how they would play out before? before? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh, it actually is happening. Okay. Like, I think the one that stands out for me the most was 
I think it's like Uzi is standing in the front door in his tracksuit holding like a blah 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 and I was like okay imagine the little child in his Adidas red jumpsuit. The <laughs> funniest thing for me was when at the funeral they were all wearing black jumpsuits instead of red. I thought that was so funny. Like it's just one of those Wes Anderson things that just made me laugh really hard. <laughs> How much do you think Adidas was like do you think Wes Anderson like got adidas like partnership through that or no hashtag sponsored Maybe. i like this movie had like a really decent amount of like influence on the fashion world surprisingly like looking into it and like i know like uh when like frank ocean was like starting his career he wore like richie's headband like every time he performed and shit so the influence there culturally you know just Gwyn- gwyneth paltrow's bob and pink barrette yeah hey look you know? Shake, you know that's a yeah. that's an easy halloween costume gwyneth yeah Paltrow and if Ritchie i were blonde yeah and chaz they're all good but then you it would require someone to have actually seen role <laughs> yeah you'd have to explain it but why are you wearing a we, just, we can just have suit. a film club at our halloween movie everybody dress up as damn a i should have uh, done it the week that we would had be, halloween on film that club been cool. where yeah. only like seven people showed up because everyone wanted to go to a party and we were like well it's thursday <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we're here and then, yeah walk, yeah would have been a good idea we would have all understood each other's costumes, at least for the most part, probably. You know, but eh. I think Wes Anderson to go back to the movie. Wes Anderson. <laughs> yes, good idea, no, good idea. definitely. <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier. I promise. Um, but he just he does such a good job. Like I said earlier, he like makes me laugh and he makes me cry. And there's just like he just like swings wildly between grounded, legitimate emotions and just this absurd balls off the wall comedy and it like works and i'm just okay with it like yeah oh the one line that i had been thinking about was when it's like right after well it's like right after they find out that the dad is that royal is faking i don't know if you want to it's there's a point where he says to uh so spoilers the, podcast so yeah. go ahead stephanie so after they find out that Royal Tenenbaum has been faking his cancer, um, he's leaving. And so the Ethylene Tenenbaum, the mom, is, well, she's getting engaged to the her accountant, Mr. Sherman. And mm-hmm. that's uh, honestly, that's, that is what triggers this whole cycle of events. Because Royal doesn't come back until he finds out they're getting engaged. And he's like, no, I can't have let that happen. But anyways, he's leaving. And he looks at Margot and he's like, you know, he's not your father. And Margot's like, neither are you. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that was just, that was such a, it was like funny, but I was like, oh my gosh. Emotional. And then, and then Pagoda goes and stabs him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And then when Pagoda, when I think it's Ethelene and Mr. Sherman, they're like leaving to go somewhere. And Ethelene, I think they just like, they had just fought with Royal or something, but Pagoda's like holding the car door open. And then when he finds out that Ethelene is not going, only Mr. Sherman is, he just closes the door and goes back. And- oh my gosh, it's really funny. I think this film is the most grounded one, I- in my opinion. Yeah. I think he finds the balance well in this one that I 
think I have a hard time. That's why I had a hard time, not necessarily a hard time, but I still had that question of like why Wes Anderson when I was watching Rushmore and Grand Budapest, especially Grand Budapest. I think this film helps me understand Wes Anderson more. So yay. 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 <laughs> But I think the reason why is just because I think Wes Anderson in all his films seems to just be trying to display people who are messed up and fucked up and have all their own different yearnings and fears and desires and then just depicting these people as trying the best they can. I think Royal Tenenbaums really like that's like displays that kind of theme the most um but I feel like it's inherent in all the other two films that we watched but I feel like it's the most effective and potent in this particular film and I think just throughout his filmography he's interested in kind of not messed up people, but just people in general, people are messed up. They have their own fears and desires and paranoias, and they're all just trying the very best they can to get through it. I think this film openly admits kind of, I think we, I mean, we talk about it. We've talked about it with Rushmore and Grand Budapest, how it doesn't like frame these people as here, like heroes or villains in any sort of way. But I think Royal Tenenbaums really goes out of the way to kind of make that true of like, there's no heroes and villains. Like Chaz, when he beats Eli up, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I think I, I need help too. Like Eli's like, oh, I, I need help. And Chaz, who is like, I mean, I would agree has a good motivation to wanting to beat Eli oh, up yeah, because most he definitely. almost killed his children. <laughs> And killed his think, dog. Yeah, yeah, and killed his dog. <laughs> but at that moment, instead of being like, yeah, I des- I should have beat you up, Wes Anderson has him say, yeah, I think I need help too. Because we've seen throughout kind of like the toll of his wife's death on him and leading him to be kind of paranoid, along with the fact that Royal has favored Richie as as a son. Um, Royal shot Richie. <laughs> Uh, or shot Chaz (laughs) with a BB gun with a BB still stuck in his hand. (laughs) That's my say. That's my piece on (laughs) on it affecting me. And that little like line reading Vensler does where he says, it's been a long year, dad. I don't know. It just kind of fucks me up at the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's a good punch. Like every time I watch it. Yeah. And then I like at the end how he's like Chaz is the one who's in the ambulance with Royal and he's the one who mm-hmm. kind of sees him die. It's kind of a nice, I think they had the most strained relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just kind of comes full circle that way. Yeah, there wasn't really like a character that it, like left me wanting more yeah. out of them, really. I mean, more just like I was like puzzled at Raleigh's decisions to stay affiliated with the family after <laughs> yeah. he did on ancestrally. But, you know, good for him. Stay strong. But yeah. I think all the characters are like extremely well-oiled. Plus there was still the, like, pretty much in all of Wes Anderson movies, the children are pretty much as competent or more competent than the adults. And mm-hmm. I think that is pretty much constant throughout, mm-hmm. I think, most of his movies. At least definitely the three that we've watched. But And I feel like Wes, probably a cat person. Because dogs die fairly often in his movies. <laughs> a cat died in Grand Budapest, though. 
Oh yeah, you're right. Oh yeah, when Will the yeah. just threw him off. I don't know, it seems like a dog person because he breeded that created that rat Dalmatian breed. <laughs> yeah, 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 true, true. He also directed Isle of Dogs. <laughs> Good point. Good point. But the dog abuse is there all the same. All right. What was the the breed of their dog that died? I was just talking Heart about dog. Basset Hound, I think it had really long ears. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> rat dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they did make rat dogs and it drank that blue thing. Sounds I don't like, know what that was. Sorry to bother you. <laughs> what? Sounds like sorry to bother you a little bit. Yeah. They but have they rat were, dogs yeah. and sorry. No, I was just saying the the whatever happens. Anyways, yeah. Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> Wait, well, I'm seeing Sorry to Bother You. What are you referring to? No, I was just saying, like, uh, you know. The creation. Army Hammer stuff? Cre- yeah, creation uh, of weird stuff, you know. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you don't want to spoil that part. No. But yeah, also, saw fucking needle drops throughout. Gotta say, so you know. So many needle drops. Like, Jesus when these Christ. days from Mika drops when Margo gets off the bus it's just oh my god it's so good yeah I love that C4 oh gosh it's beautiful yeah and then like how Richie like talks around like oh yeah I have the same person picking me up like I used to it's like oh well you know what's happening yeah oh yeah so many needle drops but I think it effectively works Mm -hmm. I am not someone who is like very into needle drops that much because it feels often it creates a weird dissonance especially with like really famous songs and you're just like okay my association with this song is not the same in which you are like using your song to add an effect to it but I think (laughs) Royal of Tenenbaums does a really good job kind of not allowing my disassociation my own associations to impede uh the tone tonal quality in which Wes Anderson wants to create I mean it does help, like, when he does the Elliot Smith needle drop. I don't have suicidal tendencies when I sit, listen to Elliot Smith, but I feel a certain way when I listen to Elliot Smith that Definitely feels similar. To- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be careful. I do not have suicidal <laughs> tendencies when I listen to Elliot Smith. Please, I- I'll just put that on the record. <laughs> You're communicating it well, I think, <laughs> you know? Well, like, I guess, like, the first the first needle drop is Hey Jude, right? Like, that movie is, like, not movie. That song is incredibly mm-hmm. famous, but I think it works really well with, like, the bird flying out of Richie's cage. And then they Mordecai. do the 22. Yeah, yeah Mordecai, <laughs> Who, like, develops white wings. Possibly? Mm-hmm. Is that, is it established that, that the returned hawk is Mordecai? I don't think it is. But I mean, like he comes and like chills on Richie's hand. So like probably, I don't know mm-hmm. if hawks are that trained well mm-hmm. naturally. So probably, you know. Okay, solid. solid. Mordecai evolved, and so did the family dynamic. You know, right alongside. What a visual metaphor! Wow. Yeah, SAT yeah. levels right there. Thank you. Of thank creating you. that. Yeah. Give you. me my dissertation on this film uh, in two weeks. <laughs> how the how the Mordecai hawk. <laughs> emulates the evolution of the Tenenbaums throughout the Tenenbaum clan. Yeah, no, like the songs definitely like pair well in like every scene they're used. And they are used like a lot. With the clash is like very fucking problem. It's almost 
kind of feels like a it's, I don't think it's a musical but like it does use quite a bit of songs that like the amount of songs used I think could like mirror the amount of songs sung in a musical there are a bit yeah they're also pretty close to like what's happening in the scene mm-hmm. like the lyrics themselves are like I'm just thinking of the scene where um with Royal and like Uzi and Ari right yeah, and they're kind of like going around and doing like mischievous things and stuff. And the song is Paul Simon's, I think, like me and Julio go down to the schoolyard. Oh, yeah. Something. Yeah. yeah. And that's just a great like little sequence. And it just pairs so perfectly together that it's kind of like a mirror effect between the song and what's actually happening in the scene. But in the epilogue, I just, every- oh, can go, Stephanie, go. Oh, I was just gonna say in the epilogue, this is just another funny moment. In the epilogue, they do that again, and Chaz is like made up with his dad. So it's mm-hmm. like the same shot, and then Chaz just like pops out from behind yeah. the behind Royal, and it's just it's so absurd, but it's funny. Stephanie, that's called development character development. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's both character character development and hilarious. I mean, just like the absurd fact that they're all wearing jumpsuits, all three of them, and constantly. I've never worn an Adidas jumpsuit. But I think another reason why this film really works for me, and it's kind of why I've like rethought about Grand Budapest a little Mm -hmm. bit. It's made me rethink about Grand Budapest a lot because we have the Danny Glover character and Wes Anderson actually acknowledges, I think does a pretty subtle good job in acknowledging kind of the racism of the white people in this. Oh, and yeah. it's made me really think about how in Grand Budapest Hotel, that element seems to be thrown away. Where this film, it kind of has more of an impact and has more to say. Yeah, I think it works definitely as a good, I think, like when is the film set? Is it the 70s in New York? It feels like there's, I, I don't, don't know. know. The like fashion and then also the cars. It the like cars! between like oh the 70s to the 90s. And, and I also don't know. Where, like where but Marco also... and Raleigh lived, like just looks oh, like yeah. a kind of classic like 70s, like run down New York. But like the cars are like so drab looking. Like they're mm. so disgusting looking. Oh yeah, like a fucking taxi. <laughs> yeah. That was, there's a dent there. And there. <laughs> like the the one that picks up Margot to go back home to the Tenenbaums with the broken window. Mm-hmm. I don't but, like. For me, it was just like, wait, this is an aesthetic choice. It's kind of funny considering how everything else is kind of pristine looking, and then you have these like disgusting looking cars just driving this presumably bourgeois rich family around, and they kind of just accept it. <laughs> I thought was kind of funny but yeah back to the race thing I think like I was just yelling at my tv the whole time when like Wes Anderson Wes Anderson seemed to actually be saying something with the Danny Glover character in a way that he was not with the Zero character in Grand Budapest Hotel in terms Mm -hmm. of race yeah and also think like that dynamic between like Royal just being like some old rich white guy Mm -hmm. from like probably the 70s just being so casually racist like i also was like pagoda casually or well he was first being casually and then as that conversation goes on it seems like he's like oh he like backs up yeah mm-hmm. 
but yeah, no, he like fucking calls him like Coltrane and then mm-hmm. and says so jive yeah. using kind of language that is stereotyped with the black community. And then Sherman like actually acknowledging kind of what like what did you just say? Mm-hmm. And it kind of like pointing out kind of how yeah, casually racist and kind of white this family is um I thought was really interesting and I think I would want to just dissect it a little more but I think even like the acknowledgement that's like something racist has been said and like the actual point out that the dynamic Sherman and the Tenenbaums is different is like I think it just makes me upset a little more about Grand Budapest of not acknowledging using the like using the immigrant status of zero more as a just kind of a plot device and not explored thoroughly more mm-hmm. i don't know what you guys think that's why i think royal time bombs works for me because there is that acknowledgement that i feel like he's capable of doing just i don't know why it's not done more in Buda- grand budapest yeah i think by working with like royal's sort of redemption arc ish yeah it definitely makes that function more and like, yeah, like in this movie, like the characters, well, I guess, come on, like, yeah, there's an ambivalence and the dynamic and nobody's like perfect by any means, you know, but yeah. And also I think there's probably something to be said about Pagoda's character in terms of the, like, the race conversation, just, just like, mm-hmm. yeah, because he's is like sort of like the family like made-ish, yeah. kind of, yeah, yeah, for where that thought was going, but yeah, yeah, yeah for there. I think it's just more of like there is an acknowledgement of kind of the physical difference racial difference um and how that has like in our world has negatively affected people like Sherman and Pagoda and has benefited people like the Tenenbaums even though the Tenenbaums are probably more fucked up and messed up and bad compared to Sherman and so I feel like this film kind of acknowledges like how fucked that is in a way in a subtle way where I feel like in Grand Budapest that's not there for me I don't see that that much like this oh wait go Stephanie I I mean the the stuff with Sherman was nice it was also only like two or three minutes of the whole movie so I don't know that I focused that much on it. I was like, oh yeah, racism but is I think happening. The more the two, the, well, I think, hmm, let me see how I'm going to phrase okay. this. I'll just make my the point that I was going towards okay. as I was saying this. But Pagoda's character, like Pagoda's character bothered me more than, I spent more time being bothered by Pagoda than being um, happy about the way Wes Anderson acknowledges Sherman's identity within the scheme of this like very I guess privileged family mostly because he's like he is sort of like written off as almost like I don't know comic comic relief maybe sort of but he like I'm just like is Pagoda even an actual I'm presuming that his ethnicity is Indian or some sort of South Asian but is Pagoda even like Pagoda just doesn't sound like to me that it is in South south asian name but pagoda is the name of a building style common in south asia so i was if anything in this movie did make me a little uncomfortable i was like what's up with pagoda's character and why is he called Mm -hmm. pagoda he definitely wasn't his like an individual character in the sense of like mr sherman was because 
he's very closely tied to Royal and that's pretty much his connection to this entire story. So, you know, if Royal's not in the scene, then, or, you know, isn't closely implicated in the scene, then Pagoda's usually not. So I can definitely see how, like, you might find a problem with that, but. I mean, I think the the existence of his character is, like, not a sin in and of itself. But I think, I think his name just really bothered me a lot because I was like, that sounds like it was, like, a joke almost. But I guess we are in, like, Wes Anderson land and a lot of things are jokes. Um, I don't know. That was just my two cents. I don't, I can't say anything about the name um, itself, but I wonder, because I think the Sherman thing lands really hard for me in terms of like its depiction of race to the point that when you reanalyze kind of Royal's character and his relationship to Pagoda, is it more blatant just like how dismissive Royal is of Pagoda? And that kind of make like that reevaluation that Sherman almost forces, I think, at least for me, upon the audience in terms of the racial relationship between Royal and Pagoda and Royal and Sherman. Does is that like blatant I think yeah that blatant dismissiveness I guess enough for you to kind of see Royal as the bad person in that dynamic of that manipulative persona because I think that's what I that's how kind of I see it where it's like the dynamic of Sherman and Royal kind of opens up this microaggressive is that the right word behavior of royal that almost implicates the white people more if yeah. that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> it does. yeah yeah i mean don't get makes- me wrong wes anderson i think still has some ways to go in terms of representation and an understanding of representation well um we can go watch isle of dogs for a very interesting or view into how wes anderson kind of depict thinks about race sometimes but I think just even like the blatant acknowledge, like like a simple acknowledgement feels much more, feels good. And I, I don't know, that's like really not great word of describing it, but it feels like-, like There's more a sense of like self-awareness in this as opposed to like in other movies, like it sort of just feels like a token almost. Yeah. Character. Yeah. At least in this, like it's like directly addressed. Yeah. Anything. I mean, not Pagoda's character, really, but, like, yeah, at least between, like, Sherman and Royal, like, there's that dialogue where it's had. Yeah, I think that's where what I was trying to say. Thank you for making it more concise, Joel. <laughs> I think I that's like... why it works much better for me. Yeah. What were you going to say, Joel? I totally cut you off. Oh, just something, like, completely unrelated. But we can well, move on from this. Well, it's it's okay. quite a lot. If, if no one else has anything else to say about it. <laughs> he could do better, but he, he does better in this one, I would argue. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I guess that's like, I don't know if that's a good enough bar, you know? You Pretty know, like it, it seems like a very low bar <laughs> that we're having him conquer. And I think that's kind of the way I was seeing it. I was like, Oh, yay, he finally got a little up the ladder, <laughs> but not enough because <laughs> it was so low to begin with. 
Yeah, but I mean, all right, like, Joel. Do you want to transition us out to a very much lighter yeah, topic? I- yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cultural appropriation was bad, exemplified by Eli Cash crashing his car while doing so. Oh yes, you know, while being on drugs. So that is clearly only something that would be conducive if he were very high on drugs, because that's an inane act to do. Also, uh, Eli or Owen Wilson reading, I guess, of a set line where he's like, oh, we all know like Custer died a little bitty corn. <laughs> all I'm saying is, did he actually? <laughs> Maybe he did it. <laughs> I don't know. It just kills me. <laughs> that line is, I feel, it's, I think it's so funny because it's kind of reminiscent of how people talk now to like, yeah. like, I feel like with a lot of media out there um, in our world, there's almost this need to have a hot take. Mm-hmm. Even though if it's like, even if it's so absurd, like fucking like this is old, but like even the questioning of the fucking moon landing, right? I feel like half the people <laughs> who do that are just th- there to like make you turn your head and be like, what the fuck? Or like the earth is flat, right? I think it has the Owen, Eli Cash saying that has like similar energy to a lot of modern people who want to like have a hot take, quote unquote. But it's not like there's no take to be had about the subject, you know? So yeah. (laughs) I think there there is a little bit of like media commentary in this movie too. Just like, yeah, like how they all sort of like interact with, I mean, being like prodigies and half of them like celebrities. Like, yeah, like Richie's treatment and that sort of like sort of helped push him into like being just like primarily depressed because of like going for like being the bomber, you know, to eat to where even his fucking dad is like, what happened to you, bomber, you know? Or then, yeah, then like Eli's book tour and like being heralded as that and then also being on TV. You just brought up two things I did want to talk about. So first, I guess one thing that I also related a lot to was I mean I was never called a genius when I was a kid never but there is that inherent I think when I was a kid they had like the gifted and the and they called it gate I don't know what it stood for but basically Mm -hmm. they would split people up based on like standardized testing of how good you were at math or English and then you would be put into like classes that were a little more advanced than the normal class at least where I grew up and so they're but they they do it really young so like you're in middle school fifth grade yeah yeah so you're inherently told that you're just smarter than everyone else and so when challenges arise do you come in with like that cell such high self-esteem that you're you're like you're constantly told that you're gifted you're smart that when a challenge does arise and it messes with you and you don't know what to do that I think there is that inherent like neat feel to just give up because oh I'm told I'm smart and this is a blockade so it must be a blockade for everyone else and I think I related to that just because like I have felt that some way growing up where like I think I've overcome that kind of gifted mentality but I think it really does fuck up your mindset as you grow up being told that you're smarter than everyone else even though you are like probably not you could also it and I think this is true with like Margot and Richie but you could also look at it the other way where you're kind of told that you're you know this child genius or at least you know smarter than the majority and then when you have a problem come up and 
either it messes with you or you can't really meet it or you fail to meet it, then you're instantly questioning yourself and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, am I actually smarter? Is the, do normal people, is this easy for, for other, you know, for normal people? What I've been told. Yeah. 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 And then it's, you know, it's a pretty big plummet. Hard to I bounce back that, from quickly. That genius through line, I think, even though it kind of presents itself as a way for Wes Anderson to be like, look at this absurd thing I'm trying to introduce kind of also allows kind of the emotional depth to be explored real like more deeply just because I think this film is just people who were scarred as children and told different things when they were children and finally when they grow grown up like grow up as you said when they face those challenges they start questioning themselves and in that moment they start to kind of doubt their own existence when you're I can totally see it being the case that when you're told that kind of thing as a child you sort of like run out of space to go grow into because you're like oh you're peaking you're peaking you're peaking you're peaking and like like was like Margot had won some award when she was like 12 or whatever and so I can totally understand from like a midlife crisis standpoint or even like a like I guess I had sort of a similar revelation at when I came to college it was like oh I actually have to start studying now and I think that's a very common thing that well I'm serious like oh I actually still have to like studying and putting effort into stuff because it was and I think that's something that you hear a lot from people in those situations where you know at one point or another they have a reality check and they they have to confront who they are I guess in that sense like you know especially with like Richie finishing retiring at 26 and Chaz doing whatever he's doing like Chaz can make as much money as he wants but it doesn't stop the fact that his wife died in a plane crash and that doesn't protect his sons and all that and it's just it's indeed a crisis and I think all the children go through it and it's watching from the outside is certainly an interesting experience because you can like sort of sympathize and you can sympathize and you can condemn but it's like they're very well-rounded characters yeah and it's sort of like with all i'm coming back home it's sort of like i mean yeah essentially like the film is about a bunch of people dealing with traumas that were never like fully coped with so then like them coming home is sort of like them just like trying to like channel that listlessness into like rediscovering childhood almost and then realizing that that was also deeply flawed. So like sort of coming to terms with like not only the relationships with each other, but also like themselves, which again, part of the pull of this film for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is the pull for me as well. I remember reading a letterbox review and I thought this poll was kind of obvious, but it kind of basically said how they read some article about how the te- like this movie is about just a bunch of people who when they grow up realize that they are not adored and special in the way they are and it's like that has led to the damage of the 22 years but yeah mm. I think and I think this film is just like watching these people cope with that damage and trying to figure out and identify that damage. There was something interesting about how Margot was like, when he, he, she was calling Eli and he was like, oh, why don't you call me a genius? And she's like, that word. Means a lot to me. Yeah, yeah, it means a lot to me. I think, and they sing that that line pretty early on. And I think 
that line kind of captured that kind of desperation and sadness that I think this film just consistently has that I think makes it the emotional punch work more for me that that sadness and melancholy and loneliness and whatever is just constantly there and felt um in a way I think for me Rushmore and Grand Budapest don't have that consistent feeling in and I I I should stop just comparing the two because the three but it's hard not to but yeah and I think just that the through line of the giftedness that has translated into an identity crisis essentially really packs a really emotional gut punch for me yeah me too (laughs) also in agreement yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay Alanda, the other thing that you kind of brought up, I wanted to kind of discuss. So I'm taking a death class. So this is the only reason why it's like very on the top of my mind. Um, I guess I should clarify more. It's not like a death class, but it's a class that analyzes how death is depicted in media and um, stuff. But anyways, um, one of the things we talked about was how one leaves their legacy through death. And you were talking about how this film has an interesting through line in terms of how it's talking about media. And it made me remember how a lot of the books in this movie are framed. Like when the Royal Tenenbaums book is first introduced, it's like a bunch of book covers side by side in the back. And then the same with Eli's book. I think the same with Ethelene's book. And there's a couple other books that do that. And then I think the biggest one for me was at the end on the gravestone when they, it says like how Royal died. Um, It was like, he died in battle, (laughs) saving his children or Mm -hmm. something like that. And then Margot has an intense relationship uh, with writing and the different um, plays that she hasn't written, I suppose. And then um, Bill Murray's character, I'm blinking on his Raleigh name. Sinclair. Raleigh Sinclair, yeah. His book about Dudley, is that his name? Yeah. The the guy who may or may not have colorblindness. Which, <laughs> side note on that, Dudley doesn't make the formation, but the red square is in the right location. Right? Yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> if I If I understand colorblindness correctly, you you have like like the colors of the blocks are red and tan and i don't think that's because you either have like blue green color blindness or like isn't red green a color blindness yeah there are like specific color combos and i'm pretty sure i don't think red tan is one of them (laughs) like those are very starkly different wavelengths or at least to the human eye i don't know it was it was fun. But yeah, to continue on what I was saying, I was just kind of interested in how there seems to be this exploration on like how Deception. we want to be remembered after death in a way, or how we want to even leave like a legacy. How do we know like someone exists without kind of like something documenting their lives or something that they've documented in a way? I don't think this film like is like very existential in that way, but I think there, I found that there was slightly a through line in terms of like understanding how one's legacy, how one leaves a legacy in our world. And I felt there was something interesting about all of them being kind of literary authors 
in like writing down their own thoughts and perceptions and how they view the world. Yeah. I don't know if you guys gave any thought in terms of that. Like a wider perspective. I think like a lot of like the perceptions that each of the characters like had of each other was like sort of like a game of telephone in a lot of ways, like how they have like people fucking spying on Margo and uh and Eli and then building up this fake story in their heads about what was actually going on there uh like the family's perception of Eli as a person on his own like Royal didn't like him but everybody else was sort of fine with his presence and then it came out that he was like a I mean not that addicts don't deserve sympathy but that he was like a sort of like an asshole who was a raging drug addict involved with like bad things so like yeah I think so I guess like sort of like how like I mean very a large or like distant sort of bridge to create I guess but like sort of like how media perception I guess misconstrues a lot of other people's like existences and realities I guess so yeah and then like Richie's meltdown being depicted on tv and then so I guess like a lot of like these like understandings that they had of each other weren't actually like from each other more so just like this long line of communication that could also be mirrored in the media I suppose end of thought yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I hadn't thought about that but I can definitely that definitely makes sense like that would be a valid parallel in my view (laughs) Stephanie do you have any thoughts on terms of that like we've wrung this movie out to dry hung this movie out to dry wrung it that feels like negative I enjoyed this film quite a bit (laughs) I like I think the the characters in it are a little bit of a downer at times but it is a good movie like the the family dynamics are really done are done really well um you have like the favorite kid the kid who hates the father the distance the adopted kid and everything and like old wounds come come back to be come back to be surfaced and everything and so it is well done Okay, then before we end, we must talk about Gwyneth because Gwyneth Paltrow just, I feel like is like an anomaly for me personally. And I I, <laughs> I don't know if any of y'all care about who she is as a person or as a celebrity, but Oops, just to see know. her in this role and like, I feel like I've already mentioned this in the other two podcasts of like perception and persona of people and then them being totally different in Wes Anderson films. Mm-hmm. Um, Gwyneth being Margot, I was just amused the whole time. I did not know she had that range. Oh yeah, no, she definitely puts in the shift. Like in like, I don't know, I mean, she's not like prominent in Seven really, but even in there, it's just like a great movie, but like, yeah, her existence is like fine. But yeah, in this role, she definitely like takes over the screen every single time. She's not goop in this role oh yeah yeah no supersedes that by far well no i think oh no go ahead natalia uh, i was was gonna uh bring up a different topic (laughs) oh okay i i think i was just gonna add like one more thing of like her character also is just like a consistent ball of sadness and i (laughs) think again i've already talked about i already said this multiple times but just like that consistent sadness that's kind of always in the background again just like makes this film work in terms of like both the comedy because the comedy kind of like cuts in just at the right time it's almost like a relief mechanism in a way and so the humor I feel like for me personally hits well um not like 
Wes Anderson, like all, if anything, Wes Anderson's, Wes Anderson films are all consistently funny. I just think that, I think that consistent sadness does make the humor a little more, more of a chuckle rather than a sniff. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think again, there is, they all have daddy issues and she also, her, her daddy issues are very interesting in my opinion as well. I think the whole idea of her being adopted and being constantly reminded that she's being adopted is kind of fucked, but it also gives into an interesting insight on how she functions in terms of wanting to be loved by anyone. I guess that's, I don't know what that says about her various affairs with many different people, but there is that constant like yearn to be held and loved by the people that are supposedly close to you that is again, very relatable. One more funny thing, but uh, when she's walking with Richie and she drops the cigarettes and Richie is like, you dropped some cigarettes. And she's like, no, I didn't. Those are mine. <laughs> also just really funny. That's I loved all. the attempt with the nicotine stick to try and stop. And she's just like, yeah, this thing is, <laughs> it looks like a giant fun dip stick, like stick. <laughs> yeah anyways natalia what did you want to say we can move on from Gwen now <laughs> i was just gonna ask out of curiosity out of the three films that we watched did you have one that you preferred out of the three i have a ranking i have a ranking do we want to end with our rankings of our three sure. Wes andersons okay roll of tenenbaums is number one and then rushmore and then grand budapest I'm I'm Budapest, Ten and Bonds, then Rushmore. Are we going off like all the Wes Anderson films we've seen? Or just, just the three, the, right? Just the, just three. the three. We're containing okay. our sexual, not all. All of right, let's well, just make it sure. Just making sure. All right, it's not like a landmark or anything. Okay, yeah, probably Ten and Bonds, Budapest, Rushmore, but those last two are close. Yeah. Oh, I would say Rushmore, Budapest, Ten and Bonds. Wow, I love the range we all got. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> all different. Wow. Great, all different. Great. Yes. We're not all love Wes Anderson. Or we have all had a good time. A real good time watching yes. and recording these. I've had a yes. royal good time. You know? <laughs> Someone, come on. <laughs> you, we, I mentioned it before <laughs> no. you got here, Joel, but I had made a mistake yesterday. And I thought uh-huh. we were doing Moonrise Kingdom for today. Oh. And so I watched Moonrise Kingdom and Royal Tenenbaums yesterday. What did you think of Moonrise Kingdom? It was good. It was funny and sweet. And I was like, this is, I'm feeling so comforted by the Wes Anderson movies. But it was, I watched Moonrise Kingdom and then I watched uh, Woman in the Window because I had, me and my friend, we had agreed we were going to watch it. And then I watched Royal Tenenbaums and I think (laughs) I just, I got like whiplash from how, much of a genre change it was yeah. and how the fact that the first and last movie are very good in the middle woman in the windows mm, bad. i've heard bad things yeah, yeah i've heard i was listening to like a podcast where they were like just beating the shit out of it and they're not like movie critics they just kind of watched it because it's in the culture <laughs> and they uh-huh. were just like what the fuck hey, is going on me adams is warning us if she doesn't get more an oscar soon this is what she's gonna do. We Dude, do I really double think feature, so. <laughs> double feature on Woman in the Window and Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy. Jesus, yeah. Oh, I Jesus. I was, like, literally, like, oh, I like, literally, like, I feel like she is sending a distress signal. Like, all the roles she's picking up are just tragic. 
I was I watched it with one of my friends and we we watched it like on teleparty online and I was telling her about that movie and Hillbilly Elegy and how she had like she's been nominated six times for an Oscar and she hasn't won and then I was like you know maybe we should like watch a good Amy Adams movie to cleanse our palate and I was like we're watching Arrival at Club you should you should you should come great idea but, yeah yeah, she might actually. She's hey, in Bellingham. It's she not might been announced. Down. We've wa we're watching Arrival at Club. Oh, <laughs> well, nice little Easter egg. You know, for here I've now. known for a very long time that we were yeah. watching Arrival yeah. in week ten. What are you talking about? <laughs> actually, this prom pod is probably going to come out after Arrival. <laughs> but, um, Whatever. 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 <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Um back to Royal Tenenbaums for a little bit just to conclude this podcast yeah, on a coherent note. Amy yeah. Adams, we hope you get your Oscar. I hope it's not because of Dear Evan Hansen because that trailer looks bad as well. Um, but yes, Royal Tenenbaums, I think it was my favorite Wes Anderson film. I think it made me understand him more in terms of someone, a director who's just trying to understand humanity in a way and when humanity is presented with challenges, how the goodness and humanity and the extreme badness the badness whether extreme or not can interfere and how we kind of overcome that um interference of our badness um i think that is kind of if you were to say what his films were all about i feel like that is it an exploration on humanity just through a very absurdist and abstract aesthetic and mechanism that may work for you or may not work for you. I think before, before I wrap this up, I think I've understood Wes Anderson as like someone who like his humor works and because it like, it's like the oddest things that someone will come up with in your brain. Like, I feel like it's the saying out loud of some weird shit and then you're just like, oh, yeah that's funny <laughs> and you keep moving it's just like all the in, like insane thoughts in your head just being said out loud not thoughts but like insane things things that wouldn't normally make sense if you put them into a sentence or in like horrendously out of place yeah just absurd like it's like chaz asking like if richie's suicide note was sad <laughs> <laughs> it's like the where you're like at a funeral or something and you like make a joke at the funeral it's like yeah oh no that's weird and awkward but it's kind of funny <laughs> <laughs> i think that's the best way i can describe wes anderson absurdist humor where it feels like you're in a weird and awkward position and then you just use humor to lighten that weird and awkward <laughs> position <laughs> but yeah back to royal tenenbaums great film highly recommend it has, although acknowledges race, also has some issues with race in general that we feel like Wes Anderson can clean up or be better at. I think we can all agree with that. Yeah. Be better, Wes. <laughs> yeah, be better <laughs> depiction of race. You know, Gypsy Cab is not really, although the exterior of the cab, you know, very nice. No need to call it a Gypsy Cab, you know, <laughs> things like that. The naming of Pagoda, as Stephanie mentioned, could be, you know, not there. But yeah, overall, very good film. Natalia is a big fan of Rushmore, so you should go watch Rushmore. It's the reason why we started this um, podcast yeah. up again. Um, really revitalizing us, Rushmore. <laughs> um, and 
yeah, do you guys have anything else you want to say about Rushmore? Or not Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums and Wes Anderson specifically before we put Wes Anderson to rest. I don't know if in the future someone wants to do a Wes Anderson pod, but for now, our journey with Wes Anderson is at a close. So yeah, do you guys have anything else you want to say? I like his movies. They're pretty good. Should go watch them if you haven't. French Connection coming out in Cannes. French, French Officially. Dispatch. French <laughs> Dispatch. Oh my God, so many go. French blank. <laughs> There's the French Exit, French Connection, and now French Dispatch. Looking forward to it. It looks like it's star-studded cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Timothée. Timothée. <laughs> Timothée, yes. He's going to have a big year. Oh, yeah, that's Dune. Yeah. Oh. I'm so excited. Anyways, we probably end. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, does anyone else have anything else to say before I wrap this or we wrap this up? Because it's a collaborative effort, Stephanie and Natalia. Go watch the movies. They're great. <laughs> Go to a theater soon. If, you can't if you're vaccinated. vaccinated fully vaccinated. Yeah. Support the theaters and the big screen people. And your local theaters. Yes, local theaters, especially local theaters. All right, cool. Anyways, um, thanks everyone who has gotten to the end of this Wes Anderson trilogy with us. I know I've had fun watching all these films. Um, They've been real palate cleansers to difficult weeks um, and just very stressful weeks in terms of the school year. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us as much as we watched the movies. You can get more info about pods and future meetings of the film club or future podcast information at our social medias. You can find us on Facebook at Film Club UW and on Instagram and Twitter at UW Film Club. Um, You can catch up on episodes or listen to new episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can read reviews, um, features, top tens, different stuff in written form stuff um, that people at our club have written about movies they liked, disliked, or really passionate about at students.washington.edu slash film. And yeah, have no idea what we're going to be talking about next week because we have completed this Wes Anderson trilogy, so we don't know where we're going next. But hopefully we continue um, beyond this. And yeah, other than that, yeah, thanks for listening and talk to you guys next week. <laughs>